welcome to Film Trace. This is a podcast where we trace the life of a film from conception to production all the way to release and reception. Today we have a special guest. Uh, we'll call him Drax. Do you want your full name, Ryan? Or you want to go by the Drax? Drax it's up to you. Fine. I like that. Drax is fine. So he is an old high school friend uh, who lives out in California. He's in the biz, as they say. Uh, <laughs> Hendrix, what do you what do you do in the business? Tell us tell us what you do. Well, um, I basically am a production accountant. I um, monitor the budget day to day to make sure that we're meeting our targets. And uh, the better part of it is, I get to pay people, and they like to see me and. You know, that's um, that's more or less what I do for day to day. I also do a little bit of um, budgeting, uh, like line producing type of work. But um, yeah, what is a line producer? That's something that uh, I've always wanted to ask. A line producer usually um, is uh, a step above the unit production manager. They basically have created the budget for the show and they kind of, um, you know, in concert with the unit production manager, keep the show on track in terms of the budget constraints and things like that. And they're responsible for getting a lot of the contract language in place and with the unions and with the payroll companies and just kind of a big logistical kind of producer type, you know, more nuts and bolts versus kind of creative. Gotcha. I think you're the first person we've had on the show that works in the movie industry. Is that right, Chris? Yeah. First, uh, first insider hot takes. So we're gonna go to you, uh, Hendrix, for uh, some insider tips on how this uh, the fountain, which was my choice, the 2006 Darren Aronofsky film. Uh, that's what we're doing today. What is it? Episode eight, I think. We're almost to the end of season three. Um, why did I choose the fountain? I don't know why. Um, <laughs> yeah, I remember seeing it when it came out, and it made me super angry. Oh, really? Um, yeah, I walked out of the theater, and like I had seen Pie, I had seen Requiem at that point. And so I went to go see this, obviously, in the movie theater. And it might have been what, 2006. I don't even know where I was living. Um, maybe Wisconsin, maybe North Carolina. Who knows? Um, and I walked out just like, what the hell was that? So maybe we can start out with that. Like, what were your, if you, did you guys see it when it came out? And then what was your initial reaction to The Fountain? Uh, hell yeah. I saw it when it came out. Not only was it a new Aronofsky joint, but also... Uh, it had a soundtrack by his usual composer, Clint Mansell, but also Mansell uh, collaborated with Mogwai, the post-rock Scottish band that I was very much obsessed with at the time. And uh, I, so, yeah, I, I had a very different reaction. I probably had some you know, confirmation bias going in, wanting it to be excellent and be and also i was just like i was super into like pretentious stuff at the time and so like <laughs> i the more pretentious that something was the more it it vibed with me as a must have 21 year old film. <laughs> exactly i i fell head over heels for it um uh, uh, hendrix did you see it when it came out i did i saw it in the theaters um i might have seen it with a mutual friend of ours named harry um oh out in los angeles uh no well I, you know i'm not really sure there's actually a picture that exists on facebook of me in the theater that harry took um and i'm just um, documented evidence i'm very unhappy in the picture um i don't think i was very angry per se but i was definitely disappointed um like you both a big fan of the filmmaker himself was excited to see a new film from him the trailers look really interesting um I actually thought that the Clint Mansell score was like the best part of the movie. So at least that worked out. But um, it was, 
it was profoundly disappointing. Never seemed to deliver, I guess, on kind of all the what the press was saying kind of at the time and what the, the kind of the trailer, the little snippets we were given. Um, yeah, the, the trailer was fantastic, I felt like. Uh, and so I was super hyped for it. I think, you know, one of the bigger, one of the main reasons I want to revisit it is to see if my opinion has changed because back then it was kind of a rough watch. I was like, eh, maybe I missed something. And it, some people say this is like a cult film because it did not do very well at the box office. Mm-hmm. Uh, it only made what, like 15 million worldwide cost $35 million to make came out in that sort of holiday season of 2006 uh, so it didn't do very well. And I think with time, some people have gone back and rediscovered it because of his his newer films that just, you know did a lot better, like Black Swan and The Wrestler, um, and maybe even the more recent Mother. Uh, I think people have gone back and seen this and be like, oh, maybe there's something here. Um, I don't know. So what is what is The Fountain about? Chris, maybe you want to take that that uh, grenade and dive on that <laughs> yeah you know uh i had a uh, my brother-in-law ask me because i was telling him i was watching this and he's like what the heck is that i've never heard of that and i was uh, i was like trying to think of a way to like succinctly uh summarize it for him and i basically like verbal diarrhea out oh you know it's about like a conquistador <laughs> slash doctor slash celestial <laughs> astro astronaut that uh, is trying you know find the fountain of youth but also like save his wife and i don't know if it's really cares more about the cancer or the dying or the mortality and he's like okay that 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 sounds interesting <laughs> but yeah it's uh, i mean the log line is is a is a mess uh and it goes like this uh, a man travels through time on a quest for immortality and to save the woman he loves. As a 16th century conquistador, Tomas searches for the legendary fountain of youth. As a present-day scientist, Tommy desperately struggles to cure the cancer that is killing his wife. Finally, as a 26th century astronaut in deep space... By the way, I don't think we had any time cards, no, like title no. cards, <laughs> anywhere. Tom begins yeah. to grasp the mysteries of life, love, and death. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, even when you see it, you're sort of like, I guess I kind of know what's going on. I, the big question that people have when they see this, is it all the same person? So there's three yeah. male and it's all the same guy. I disagree. No. <laughs> see now. I think, story. I think the, I think the astronaut and the present day dude are the same. I don't yeah, think. I think Tomas is. I think, um, this kind of. I think it's actually, you know, you mentioned, you guys mentioned the log line for me and, you know, I'm, I, I think we all have the benefit of watching it very recently. So, you know, it's kind of fresh in our memories for me, it's just a grief drama with just kind of a science fiction fantasy overlay, which kind of takes, uh, takes kind of place in her like manuscript or novel that she's writing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's just, but at its heart of it, it's, it's kind of just a present day. My wife is dying and I'm trying desperately to hold on and save her. And it kind of delves into this kind of, for me, at least it seems like kind of this fantasy dream of his where he's, you know, kind of putting that, I don't know, filter over kind of, you know, what we're actually seeing happen in real time. But so then do you think by that estimation that the celestial astronaut narrative is the final chapter that he writes for her after she dies? I think so. I I guess the final scenes in the film um, 
seem to always circle back to him like planting the tree in her present day grave. So, you know, like we don't end on the scientist being kind of, you know, fulfilling his, you know, mission in space or whatever. We end basically on him saying goodbye to his mm-hmm. wife mm-hmm. and planting a tree. Um, so yeah. I think at the time when I first saw it, I was really trying to deconstruct it and really trying to confuse the hell out of myself, you know, (laughs) trying to make it all make sense with that kind of larger meaning where it could be that, you know, he is this, you know, like a cloud atlas type of thing where it's like a a more immortality time. But I think pared down, perhaps it might not be as deep as you know i think it is. <laughs> <laughs> well it's funny like um in kind of revisiting this film when i first saw it i didn't really go online and check out different theories but like this pass i was like what do people think of this movie and there are like 10 12 different interpretations of what the story is actually about and like whether the contestador plotline's real or it's part of her book um and if the future part of it with the astronaut i guess and his spaceship that's actually a bubble um is that real or is that some his imagination but i do think the story is really grounded in the present day right this present day uh neuroscientist trying to search for a cure that's going to save his wife and spoiler alert she dies um and he doesn't is not able to do it but yeah it's almost like and i think uh aronofsky said that like this this movie is kind of his rubik's cube he kind of created it in a way where he wants people to obsess about it and think about it. And a lot of people have done that over the years, the last 15 years and created all these different theories. Um, it is interesting. So how did this thing really come about? It has a pretty fascinating kind of background, especially on the production side. I, mean, I think an important thing to note is that it was co-written by an actual neuroscientist, uh, Ari Handel. Uh, who was um, a roommate of uh, Darren Aronofsky at Harvard. Uh, and so he looks like, what else did he write? Uh, he produced The Wrestler, Black Swan, and Mother. And you guys have not seen Mother, right? No. no. Okay. And so Ari helped him write The Fountain and Noah. I haven't seen Noah at all. Uh, no, so I don't think, have we seen, <laughs> I haven't seen any of his recent stuff. So I don't know if Noah's bad or good. Um, but obviously, you know, Ari had a huge effect on the story and the script and all the sort of scientific aspects to it. Um, but where, you know, where do we think this thing came from? Uh, and how did it get made essentially? And I just kind of shows, sorry, it just kind of shows that neuroscience was foremost because there are so many scenes in the lab. Yes, so many. There's a lot. (laughs) I just had to say that, like Chris. So please continue. (laughs) (laughs) No, I was going to say that. Like it, it seemed like there was a lot of mashing up that came. That was part of the genesis of this because Aronofsky has said in interviews that it began with just the concept of the fountain of youth, and that's already just like a huge concept to kind of disentangle into a um you know not only coherent but also engaging narrative and then uh he was also reading a lot about like Ponce de Leon and the search for a fountain of youth and like the conquistadors and Spanish politics um and then there's so there's like this I mean the kind of imperialism aspect of the story was a lot more front and center for me this time where it was just like wait why it there it was it was really hard to like pick apart and like feel like anything tangible was going on in that particular storyline but like you said in the present day it there's such a like the thing that i kept noticing 
that kind of stems from this attempt to mash up and then bringing on Ari Handel to to co-write with him. So then he has has that kind of uh, uh, center of of the neuroscience of the lab of the constant experiments on the monkey Donovan, and you get this really kind of um, you you end up he ends up being able to and he's done this a lot with his movies have his cake and eat it too right where he's able to like say that it's purposely disjointed rather than it just kind of being disjointed by the nature of what he's trying to do here um and then also you have like the the non-chronological narrative where you're flipping back and forth between three different time periods and it just seems like this was a classic case of you know having a lot of ideas and having what he thought was the money to do those ideas and then suddenly getting that budget slashed in half do you want to tell uh what exactly happened with the the production process here dan yeah well even before that like i i I was watching one of these interviews it was like for a movie phone i think rachel weiss who plays his wife in the movie hugh jackman's the lead of course um uh, he gives three different answers in a single five-minute video about what the origin <laughs> of this was. First, he says, like you stated, the idea of the fountain started with the idea of the fountain of youth. Okay, cool. Then he says, um, uh, an early perception of the film, I wanted to do something in sci- science fiction, and I, I was also a reading, a lot, uh, reading a lot about the conquistadors in Mayan culture, and I sort of wanted to figure out a way to unite those two stories. Okay, that's weird. And then my favorite answer is, I think it all started with David Bowie's space oddity, ground control to Major Tom, (laughs) and trying to flesh out and visualize that song, and then somehow the Fountain of Youth came up in Ponce de Leon. So there's a lot of, and that's in a single (laughs) interview, single interview, he talks about three different, like... He's basically saying, like, I wanted to make three movies, but they said I could only make one. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what, it it reminds me of somebody, like, being in a dorm room and being just, like, super high... (laughs) And yeah. just being like, what if we made a movie about Mayans and then David Bowie's Space Odyssey and Ponce de Leon <laughs> or whatever? That's kind of how it feels like. I don't think the end results are that far off of where if you took that idea to fruition, where it would go. Um, but ultimately, yeah, it's, it's it's essentially you want to make a movie about the Fountain of Youth. He also makes this this crazy claim. I don't know if you guys can like refute this. There's no other movie about the Fountain of Youth. Has there not been another major film about the Fountain Youth before 2006? I feel like there there has there has to be. I, I uh, mean, in any event, I would be he makes the claim there wasn't. There wasn't. I mean, I would yeah. argue. I would argue Cocoon. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Cocoon I mean, too. Yeah, there's always some sort of like search for eternal life, right? I mean, that's kind of right, the whole thing, right. Holy Grail, all that kind of stuff. In any event, um, and this is where I want to sort of. Uh, um, kind of uh defer to hendrix here on this production side of things because we don't really have a background in movie production and how it actually works the story here is essentially that warner brothers greenlit the film uh, originally with brad pitt in the lead role and kate blanchett mm-hmm. as the uh, the wife um that everything's going well they're going to shoot down in australia then seven weeks before they shot there's like 1500 people down there they're ready to do this thing uh, Brad Pitt pulls out. Uh, and it's never really clear exactly why he pulled out. Um, the, the, there's this sort of this vague explanation that Brad Pitt didn't like the script. But it's like, if you're seven weeks before, I don't know, Hendrix, what do you think? Did this, does that sound like an actual well, you know, uh, excuse there? It's interesting because Brad Pitt is actually a big producer now. 
you know. He is, yeah, so, he's massive. And I'm not sure I I I'm not going to venture to say that, you know, he was getting into producing his own stuff that early. I mean, I I'd have to, you know, we'd have to look it up, but um you know, I think, you know, Chris kind of touched upon it, and you touched upon it too, Daniel. You both touched upon kind of the genesis of this project and what screenplay would have come out of that, those story ideas. And maybe yeah. he did get cold feet and took a look at it and said, like, this, this might not be the right time for me to do this, you know, because uh, at that point, I think also in his career, even though he was a big star, again, you know, he might have had other things on his horizon that he was eyeing that just kind of, divided his attention so i guess we'll never really know yeah um it's interesting too like uh aronofsky basically said team up on benjamin buttons that's actually interesting oh yeah yeah exactly yeah another agent um he wanted so like i think later on aronofsky basically said like why did this happen he said about the falling out with brad pitt or i don't even know if it was a falling out i think creatively we grew apart by the time it was ready to go it wasn't ready to go and so it fell apart uh, he also says the only reason this film was happening was because of Brad. So I think you're kind of Hendrick's hinting at well, uh, it's a, it's his very, producer type. It's a very role. experimental film in many ways, and you need bankable star like Brad Pitt to get that kind of a budget. So you to get like the seventy million or something, however much it was greenlit for, you need yeah. to get behind that because otherwise it's not going to sell tickets automatically. You know, right? Yeah, hundred percent. Like originally, I think it was seventy. Then they upped it to a hundred. Yikes! And then after it fell apart, and what's interesting too, I thought was that it was already delayed a year after Brad Pitt dropped out because Kate Blanchett got pregnant, and so they had to delay the filming a year. Is that I don't know? Is that a norm that happens, Hendrix? Where if a, a, well, a, they were very. A, it seems like uh, from what you say, they were very close to production. If they're seven weeks out from the start of principal photography. You know, yeah. they've been in light pre-production for months and then they probably, you know, are starting, you know, especially with the kind of effects and editing work and stuff like that. You know, they've got all those people lined up, at least, you know, contracted. And I think that seven weeks is, is, is in, in other words, is very, 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 very close. And so yeah. it is a big deal. They spent some money already. And then now you're now if you're going to try to redo it. You have to take into account that you've already spent some money on it with nothing to do yeah. for it. Um, I think you know, they had already spent like $15 million or something like that in pre-production costs. I mean, because they would probably, you know, that, that effects work and design, oh, yeah. work, that has to start ahead of time, um, yeah. you know, obviously. And then, um, you know, again, and it, it's a location shoot from what I'm hearing. Uh, you know, yeah, down in Australia, yeah, I mean, originally. You, you got a crew up down there. That takes time. At the time, Australia probably was not, quite as much of a production hub as it is now, you know, especially in relationship with its relationship with New Zealand being close to where there's a lot of people down yeah. now, uh, you know, it's the same thing with here in like Georgia and New Mexico. There are now big hubs all around the yeah. country with seasoned professionals, but it might not have been the case in 2006, 2005. You know what? Uh, I'm just finding out doing some quick Googling about what Brad Pitt was up to around that same time, 2005. Um, yeah. He actually, that he, his first feature narrative film, he had produced a documentary the year before, but um, his first feature film that he produced was The Departed, which oh. came out in 06 and oh, was filming it, it by spring of 05. And I mean, I can definitely see a scenario where like Pitt's, you know, trying to help Aronofsky make his big splash uh, after, you know, Requiem puts him on the map. And then 
Marty comes along and says, hey, can you help me out with this? And I mean, what do you which one would you choose? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point. I mean, it's it's also fascinating too. like the um, clearly people are pissed off because like the crew of the fountain wrote a letter that leaked on remember right. any cool news you guys uh, remember that yeah. back in the day um i love the quote from this letter uh so this is the crew writing about brad pitt uh, what amazes us is that it appears brad pitt has no real understanding of the impact of his decision <laughs> now only seven weeks from shooting we estimate there is over 1500 people here in australia including family and children who are now displaced and unemployed yikes uh the writers said that aronofsky uh, has encouraged us to voice our anger at pitt's decision <laughs> darren's like a real kind of interesting guy yeah he likes that drama i feel like oh, yeah. and we'll see that later in some of the reception for the film um but sort of the narrative there is that like a huge budget, a hundred million, Brad, Brad Pitt drops out. Warner Brothers is like, okay, we're not doing this now. Uh, they're basically like, hey, do you want to do Batman Begins? Uh, <laughs> and Aronofsky says, no. He's like, I'm not doing that. And then, then they give it to Christopher Nolan. I think there's a lot of parallels between those two guys. I don't know why. I guess they're like the auteur, like kind of yeah, do more experimental different time. stuff with, you know. Uh, but he turns down Batman Begins, which would be a really interesting, I think, movie. Uh, and he just continues to obsess about this film. I think it's also important to note that Aronofsky has said um, he thinks my biggest my biggest expression of what I believe is in the fountain. He said that in 2014. So this was a very very important film to him. Uh, and so he somehow he rewrote the script. I think pared it down a lot uh, and got Warner Brothers to uh, give him 35 million dollars. And then he got Hugh Jackman. I think the one thing we haven't we haven't mentioned either is that the female lead, uh, Rachel Weiss, was his girlfriend, and I think almost they may have been like fiance, but probably right around when they got married, this film came out. Um, I think that's important. No, it comes up in one of the reviews as well. You know, he put his girlfriend in the movie. Uh, they end up getting married, so there's something there, right? Uh, but he, you know, gets these people, he gets them on board, gets thirty five million dollars, which is not a small amount of money, right, to make a film. Well, uh, and well, comparatively, this, it had to sting a little. This kind of, <laughs> I, I think, yeah. kind of film though, um, it shows where the thirty-five million kind of had to go and couldn't. Right. Um, you'll notice yeah. that a lot of the sets are small, probably green screened. Um, there aren't a lot of big exterior shots and things like that. Yeah. Um, the night scenes, everything's pretty dimly lit. You can't really see very far into a lot of these environments and of course you know the cast is pared down to pretty much the bare minimum so i think yeah. that um the what you're talking about how the budget got pared down it shows on the screen it really does i think um it's noticeable Pro probably my favorite part is that like we we leave the conquistador storyline for a long time mm -hmm. after yeah. he agrees to agrees uh, with the queen that he'll go and search for the fountain of youth and then the next time we see them is like there's six guys huddled together in a dark space being yeah. like well we've lost all our men <laughs> <laughs> well it's funny because like it, we have the benefit of the new york times being on set with him when he was shooting it and they're up in montreal this is the new budget the 35 million dollar budget and he talks about one of the conquistador scenes where it was like in the original version this would have cost us 15 million dollars yeah but what's interesting about him is that like he shot pie his first film for 60k sure right and it looks amazing for 60k looks good um i was also blown away and i, I think might someone fact check me on this i don't know what the budget was for requiem but i want to say it was like four million 
maybe even less. I like it was knew tiny. Great oral history yeah. of the whole thing recently, and they probably said it like ten times in that. Yeah, four and a half million. Yeah, four and, four and a half million dollars. I mean, That's that amazing. movie looks amazing, right? Right. Um, and it's not dark it's, all the time, like you know, dimly lit all the time either. <laughs> um so he's look he's used to to having not a lot of money right and, and making use of um what he has for that cash and, and making it work for him yeah um and so okay so that's the production he gets it made this thing comes out um what's the response chris what do you what what was the critical response here well, well he w- he was not shy about uh uh doing some making catty comments in the press uh, in response to various critics. Um, probably the more notable one was uh, the Variety uh, review was pretty negative by Leslie Felperin, and he uh, said in IndieWire uh, a number of years later, not only did she attack the film, she attacked me. People in social media attack you for everything you've done. That happens all the time. But a critic should be focused on what's at hand, not attack someone's career and say their past films are overrated and say they have no ability. She clearly had an issue with me as a person and what I was putting out there as my stories. So that bothered me. Probably if I ever met her, it wouldn't be a good day. What does that mean? Is that a threat? I know. Threatening <laughs> women in IndieWire. What the hell? Uh, um, I love the quote just, in The Guardian, too. It's like, yes. Where he's like talking about negative critics. And this is like ridiculous. He goes, I know we're going to get attacked by some cynics, <laughs> but it is time for some sincerity and just to talk about the things that make us human. Oh, I mean, come on, Darren. Yeah. What's going he's, on, man? He's a sensitive um, man. I do think he's that, super sensitive. I do think I've read more than one critical review of any filmmaker where they do go on their past work or, you know, and say, make a comment like, yeah, you know, they lost the <laughs> step or something like that, you know, or. Yeah. Usually the um, filmmaker gets a little, you know, usually they'll put blurbs about the filmmaker and, you know, their vision and art and how it might have not been as successful this time, so. I don't know. Right. Yeah. And it's, he, I mean, he, and I remember there was a lot of this too when Black Swan came out, even though that had a much better critical reception. And obviously it was probably the worst of his career when Mother came out uh, because that film was so incredibly de- divisive. Um, but it all, it seems like it's not even so much like there's lots of auteurs, uh, even those in his own generation that, you know, have their, have their big drops and they take it you know, with a plum and they're like, whatever. Uh, but there, he has, he seems to like lack a kind of self-awareness about, he just like should, he, he wants everybody to automatically assume that he's like doing everything he can. And it's hard to do that when you don't know like a lot of the backstory. And also you're making a freaking movie that has like a conquistador and a celestial astronaut um, in the same story. So it's, it's frustrating that he's like kind of put on blinders to that, which also I think is part of um, the side effect of like making a really good movie for such cheap money, two really good movies for such cheap money and uh, knocking it out of the park. Uh, he probably had a pretty, pretty big ego and it all started crumbling down when Brad Pitt said, no, thanks. Yeah. I mean, when it came out, critics were not that happy with it. Right. All critics on Rotten Tomatoes, 52%, uh, 60 out of 100, which is not good. Top critics was 28%, uh, 45 out of 100. Metacritic was 51 out of 100. Those are pretty terrible scores um, just from, you know, people who do it for a living. 
the audience score is right now is at 74 percent on rotten tomatoes 76 out of 100 which is pretty it's okay um letterbox i was surprised because letterbox is what film nerds film snobs i thought they would have this higher they have it at 70 which is kind of in between decent and good for a letterbox film as long as you're like the mid 70s they they really like the movie in this case it's on the lower end of that imdb at a 72 i think to no surprise the cinema score is c minus which is (laughs) horrifically bad not as bad though as mother which did get the dreaded f Uh, um and i did see that opening weekend i believe on a sunday morning in nashville in the (laughs) suburbs and it was i think we had six walkouts out of 12 people um and this is kind of a little bit of a precursor to that sort of experience in that film where like you said like mother is extremely decisive to the point where you're going to get walkouts i don't think a lot of people walked out of the fountain no they probably walked out very befuddled like yeah. i don't what well, just happened well, um might have fallen asleep in the fountain because it's dumb oh, <laughs> i was gonna make a comment about that he keeps dumb. falling asleep reading his dead wife's manuscript and i'm like <laughs> i hear you buddy oh <laughs> the movie is I, I it was only an hour and 36 minutes um and I felt every minute of it. It is dull. <laughs> I know. It's one of the few 90-some minute movies where you can't say it was a tight I mean, 90. Just going back to like the central story is, of course, again, scientist trying to save his dying wife, right? Yeah. There's not a lot of chemistry between the two of them. And the, the no. story itself, the, the kind of romance that you're supposed to kind of have underneath it, is it's just not really that interesting. Um they love it, yeah. but that's it. That's all I get. I don't get a sense of history or even shared common interests. Like she's off in her bookland all the time, and he could care about. <laughs> you know? He's off like prodding monkeys. Like what is he doing? Um, the critic responses to these this movie was uh, there are a lot of great ones. The negative ones are fun, the most funny by far. <laughs> um, so I'll start with those uh, guys like Darren Aronofsky give auteurs a bad name. Uh, that's Peter Howell from the Toronto Star. Um, what else do we have here? Uh, how can so much style, talent, and money be squandered in the service of such blatant airheadedness? Uh, that is Sandra Hall of the Sydney Morning Herald. I think the one that really, I think uh, the reaction I like the most is Michael At- uh, Atkinson from Sight and Sound, which is a great magazine over in England. Uh, it's difficult to recall another American film uh, that in pursuing a passionate and personal vision goes so maddeningly uproariously wrong. Um, to me, that really that hits the nail on the head uh, because ultimately we've kind of established this was a very personal film, Darren Aronofsky, right? He fought to get this made. He turned down huge franchise films like Batman Begins to do this. Uh, and for years he was focused on this film. And the final result is something so messy and muddled and emotionally inert uh, that it just has that sort of, he became too obsessed. His, he got tunnel vision on this story, how he saw it, but he couldn't see it how anybody else was going to see it. Uh, it just has that sort of almost mad scientist feel yeah. to it. He, w- he was becoming um, the protagonist in Pi creating this movie exactly i actually don't know if more money would have solved the problems either like even if he had gotten no even if he had gotten brad pitt and his 100 million 70 million dollars whatever it is like i just don't think there's enough there there as is and i just don't see how you know i don't have confidence that there was more Um, i do have to say i feel like i have to put a plug in because i it was the one of the of the three of us that 
really loved this movie when it came out. And yeah. uh, I do think that there are some quotes here from critics that I respect and like a lot that uh, kind of get at at least that that feeling that I definitely did not feel as often or definitely not as conclusively as I did back in 2006 when it was released, but I still felt glimmers of, especially in the second half of the film. The first yeah. half was a real struggle for me to get through, but I'd say like right around the point where you, <laughs> when Rachel Vice dies, I guess, uh, <laughs> is when I'm like, all right, now let's get, let's, it finally felt like it started because then it's like, <laughs> He can actually like do things and there's more of like the transitioning between the different uh, ridiculous like, storylines. Yeah. Um, oh. But I, I like Helen O'Hara's quote from Empire. Uh, her benevolent review said, at heart, this is a simple Zen fable about love and death. In execution, it's a complex and gorgeous mini epic with sterling performances from its two stars. And the first sentence of that quote anyways goes back to what you were saying, Drax, where like if you can just like simplify what this movie is essentially about then perhaps you can understand it a little more and maybe even appreciate it a little more yeah, and i will say even though i don't think i agree with you that they did not have chemistry at all jackman and weiss i do think that they were they were giving it their all then th those are the two actors that they usually always do um and uh while i don't i did not very much believe jackman in all three uh different roles i very much believed weiss as both the queen of spain and this like rando uh writer that loves the first day of snow and that's pretty much all we know about her yeah, in the, the present day version admittedly though the queen of spain wasn't given a whole lot to do but no you know no. Say, go please go across the world and find the tree of life for me and then get back <laughs> we can hook i think that that was generally her um generally what she yeah. did um no I, I you bring up a good point chris i mean you know i i Try not to be too harsh. I still maintain that they didn't have a whole lot of chemistry, but as far as being actors, you know, they both did fantastic job acting. So yeah, yeah. I mean, they were definitely trying, you know. <laughs> yeah, they were. Well, I think that's the thing about it too. Is you know, I don't want to be like super negative about the movie. I clearly didn't like it when it came out. I think I hated it even more when I saw it this time. <laughs> but you can't deny the ambition. No, no, right. right. There's and we no talked, way you can deny that. We talked about this last week with uh, Cherry, as as yes. ridiculous as that movie was. And I think Mark Kermode of BBC had a probably the best quote, my favorite quote anyways, about the movie, in which he said, uh, and this kind of gets at the heart of both ends of the spectrum, bonkers, adventurous, silly, ambitious, charming, foolish, it's all those things, and it'll be gone in a week, but it's not mainstream for affair, and for that it should be celebrated. And yeah. like, I do remember really feeling that, like being able to like just go to like the multiplex downtown and see this movie, like, and probably like wrong turn was in the theater next to it, and stealth was <laughs> great, in the other one. Movie. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think I saw that in the theaters too. <laughs> yeah, I did see that in the theaters, and I had a lot better time than this. Movie. <laughs> um, uh, but no, there's something to be said for, you know, yeah, going for it, swinging for the fences. And sometimes it works. I think it worked probably better in Cherry when we watched it last week. And it, it, what's interesting, too, about this film is do you think that, especially for people who are younger, who weren't, you know, going to see movies when it came, uh, when it came out, you know, think of Zoomers or under 25, when they see this thing, uh, are they going to see it in a completely different way than we are? Are they going to, like, love it because it's so adventurous and kind of all over the place? Mm -hmm. it's, it's because it's like a, a, you know just like 
different narratives strung together essentially in the quick cuts they're all into like youtube editing so they, they must love it <laughs> right um uh, what do you think is there going to be a legacy this for this film is it going to be a cult film in 10 years 20 years when we're like you know whenever we're 80 years old are people gonna look back and be like oh wow you remember the fountain is this gonna be play at like midnight movies <laughs> the movie theaters what do you think i mean i think it's designed for fans of the director at this point i mean yeah. if you are yeah. really if you're really into his work, you know, um, and you're, you know, of a younger generation, you'll find it. And, you know, maybe they'll find something. I don't know. The movie's been out for so long, so it might be hard to imagine, but maybe they'll find something in it that, you know, <laughs> hasn't been talked about so much. Um, but I don't, you know, I have, I think my sister is technically a Zoomer and I don't know if she would. I think she would find it quite dull. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think that uh, I don't I don't think there's a lot of shelf life here. And I think that yeah. a big part of that is not with its experimental nature, which I think is probably the only thing it has going for it in terms of shelf life. But uh, like I was kind of alluding to earlier, both with like the incredible like patriarchal point of view as well as the incredible imperial point of view like neither of those play well with zoomers today anyways so like uh, i don't true. i don't think that anybody's gonna see this and think it's anything more than just like uh like a masturbatory fantasy which which it is <laughs> so like <laughs> but it's so gorgeous such a gorgeous right. fantasy i mean the, i will say like when that that part where the screen goes black in the final scene where he ascends zabulbia to uh whatever the fucking nebula, the nebula basically yeah, nebula. yeah. and the, and the, like the score cuts out and then comes back in with guitars oh my god it's i good. still uh, no, it's i i i i'm with chris on that, I, that was, it was that was the best but it, movie <laughs> but it was perhaps only good if you're like super into like perfect circle music videos or something yeah. like that <laughs> um and, and you, you kind of like we place this in his sort of film history it is what was kind of a stepping stone to his biggest hits right black swan and the wrestler what has happened you know since, where do we think darren's going here because he did Oof. noah was noah a hit i don't remember I no it couldn't have been it was a huge hit but it was it was a, it was an epic film like they gave him the money and the stars on that yeah so he got what, i haven't seen that i haven't, I haven't seen, seen it unfortunately but he got what he wanted with that one in the sense that he got money and right. big big names 359 worldwide does... on a 160 budget wait 59 worldwide 359 oh okay okay so that's like not that's not like terrible even. that's not too bad might kind of be like breaking even in the abstract depending on the yeah advertising. yeah between not a and... not a runaway hit but not a big yeah movie. And then he does Mother, which neither of you guys have seen, correct? Nope. Or it's exclamation point. Um, <laughs> Mother, I will say this. I will say this. Like, Mother is one of those films where I feel like Mother's going to be a cult film, without a doubt. Mm. Like, yeah, I see that years, a few more likely. And I haven't even seen it. <laughs> yeah, because it's just like, what was he? This also cost about $30 million. Mother did. Uh, did 44 worldwide. Um, where do we think Darren's going? Has he, is, is his sort of, golden period or whatever you want to call it like his golden age with the wrestler and black swan which were you know both um commercial successes and huge critical successes yeah. and then requiem 2 and pie is he going to come back with something or is he like going to go down this weird path where you know he's not going to make anything super interesting or great again 
What do you guys well, think? He's kind of been doing this back and forth between like batshit movies and more traditional films. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, and probably the last, you know, Noah's a little batshit, but there's a lot of bankability there with both the uh, the stars and the biblical sense of it. But like, I think the fountain uh, kind of made him realize that if he wanted to do something batshit, he had to do it in a way that like got people talking. And so that's why then he made Mother. And coming up next, he's got uh, an untitled project about a obese English teacher who I think it's called is... The Whale. Oh, okay. oh, he has titled it. Yeah, okay. I, I got some details on it. Let's about see an obese uh, English teacher who's like trying to reconnect with his teenage daughter who's estranged from him, right? Yeah. Um, which is like um, as like traditional indie bullshit as you can get. Guess who the star is? Oh, God, Brendan Fraser. What? Yes, Brendan Fraser, production company A24. Oh boy, he's back. So he's baby. going back to his roots, <laughs> I feel like. He's going back to like the indie darling. He's well, he's running away from the mainstream. You know, it sounds like that will be a moderately budgeted piece, so it's kind of a low risk, high reward type of thing if it does mm-hmm. hit in some way, shape, or form. Um I remember I almost feel yeah. Uh, well I don't know. I think he's better in that stuff, right? I don't know. Yeah. Like he, I wrestler, feel like he's yeah. better. <laughs> yeah, wrestler was pretty low budget, wasn't it? Uh yeah, it had to be. I mean <laughs> Yeah, it had to be. Um, it's like anytime he gets more than like thirty million dollars to do something, he just yeah. he just blows well, it on this ridiculous back stuff. In, uh, back around the time that we're talking about, around two thousand six, there were a couple other filmmakers that were working that kind of did similar things in the sense of how yeah. it worked. You had Soderbergh and Nolan both working there, and they would totally. do kind of like an indie kind of experimental show, and then they do a big budget show so they could do the next yeah. indie experiment. Right, right. Um. For Soderbergh, that's always worked out for him for decades. Yeah, great. Uh, Nolan, uh, it's it's a little more. He he's starting. He doesn't do as many kind of smaller budgeted things anymore. Oh, but, no, but you know, originally he, he would dabble. <laughs> yeah, it's kind yeah. of like is that like a one for you, one for me type thing? You well, think? that that I mean, I, you know, I don't know exactly what people's deals are and if they have like first look type of things or whatever. But with Soderbergh, at least when I was um, I was working in a casting office while they were doing like Ocean's Thirteen, and that was yeah. kind of the rumor that was going around. He does these big Ocean's movies, you know. He'd done three of them, which is pretty, you know, for Soderbergh, it's a lot of sequels, you know. And he had yeah. done three of them. Um, I think because they allow him the creative freedom then to kind of turn around and say, okay, can I go off and do this thing that's really important to me, like The Informant or something like, that, yeah, you know, right, um, yeah. So yeah, we'll see. It sounds like he's going back to the indie route. I think, um, I think Darren might have something still left. Um, I, I think he's a great filmmaker. The Wrestler I wasn't mean, too long ago, in, in my memory at least. It might be in actual years, but I, I don't think that he's you know, he's not washed up. Huh? I think that there's, I think that the things that he was interested in, you know, when he was making stuff like Black Swan and The Wrestler, I don't think those things have atrophied completely. I think that there's still something there something's still ticking there yes i'm Um, an optimist yeah i think you're an optimist i think he's done (laughs) i think he's absolutely (laughs) done i think he's like a pitcher that blew out his arm like this game's over i think Um, you can go either way that's my official take um any closing thoughts on the fountain at all i would say this like if you're interested you've never seen it before and you're like you're you're just 
you're into stuff that's a little bit different experimental absolutely see this it's worth seeing because it's a really fascinating film that's different is it a good story no um does it hold together all that much not really um but i think if you're interested in film and film production uh, it's worth checking out um just because it's an, an, an interesting film at the end of the day uh any closing thoughts uh hendrix or chris about the fountain uh just l- buy the soundtrack listen to that <laughs> don't watch the movie by the soundtrack <laughs> i said clint mansell is probably the best thing in the movie but um no yeah. I agree with you uh i think i agree with you both on you know it's kind of strengths and weaknesses and i'll just say that yeah i mean as a as as a fan of film i think uh i think one viewing is 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 warranted (laughs) (laughs) a one number one and no more than one that was my that was gonna be my plan until you guys started this podcast (laughs) (laughs) we screwed it up but um talented people making a film that's interesting to see once (laughs) There you awesome. go. Well, uh, Ryan, we really appreciate you having uh, uh, coming on to Film Trace. Uh, it's been yes, fantastic. You. Your perspective, your professional perspective, which we love. <laughs> thank you again. Uh, Tuning in Chris, what do we have? Weeks to see what else you guys are talking about. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. what are we you're, talking about? You're going to want to tune in next week, Dre. No, you're not. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It, 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 I, was, I was struggling. Um, I've been going back and forth between a bunch of different picks, and uh, I think I'm landing finally on the upcoming casey affleck picture every breath you take uh there's a lot there's a lot of talk going on about this film and it is uh probably going to be a little bit of a mess but in hopefully an interesting way i'm looking for an interesting story behind the film so we can trace its roots life and death you know just kind of like how jackman was doing in the fountain um we are going to uh have that ready for you next week it's on vod uh right now cool awesome uh thanks for listening this has been film trace